listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Gleaser. Welcome back. Today's guest is Don Saltzman from Skadden. Don is based in Washington, D.C., and we had such an incredible and wide-ranging conversation that we've broken it up into two episodes. This week, in part one, we discuss his career and focus on pro bono and criminal justice matters. We hope you enjoy our conversation, and be sure to tune in next week for part two. Hi, Don. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Rena. Thank you for having me. We have a lot to talk about since you're doing such amazing and meaningful work. We're going to start by digging into pro bono and indigent criminal defense work, and then we'll branch out into other aspects of Skadden's pro bono program and your experience. So let's jump right in. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and in particular your time as a public defender? Rena, um, when I was in law school, I did a uh, a third-year clinic uh, called Law Students in Court, and that's where I caught the bug um, as far as indigent defense. I spent a year um, working in D.C. Superior Court representing uh, poor people charged with uh, misdemeanors and actually uh, sort of one felony case and um, just fell in love with... uh, legal services and and representing poor people. And uh, I had a chance as a law student to uh, represent two separate clients uh, on jury trials in D.C. Superior Court. So when I I graduated from law school, I wanted to, you know, pursue a career as a public defender, but very different than today, you know, 30 years ago when I was graduating from law school, there were not public defender's offices from around the country coming to law schools looking for, you know, people who were interested in in uh, working in their offices. And so, you know, I reached out to some, but I ended up not having an offer from a public defender's office. And so I went to work for a firm for a couple of years, but my heart was really always with uh, indigent defense. And so I think maybe the best advice that I ever received as far as my career was from a woman who I married many years later who said to me, you know, Don, you love doing indigent defense work. Why don't you just go become a public defender? And so that's what I did. And I ended up at the Office of the Public Defender in Montgomery County, Maryland. So for people who don't know, Montgomery County is very close to Washington, D.C. Exactly. And I was in, uh, I went to George Washington University Law School and then worked at a uh, firm in D.C. for a couple of years, but then just went a little bit outside of D.C. to the public defender's office out in Maryland. So what do you think it is about indigent defense that was so appealing to you and sort of captured your heart? Yeah, I think um, I think it's the fact that um, people who are accused and arrested um, uh, and charged with crimes are incredibly vulnerable, whether they're wealthy or poor. Um, and the the power of the state and all the resources that um, can be brought to bear are focused on, you know, one individual. And so um, I found it very rewarding to uh, be someone who could stand between the government and uh, my clients. Um, and I found that I, you know, developed a, a really strong bond with most of my clients. So um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to exactly put into words, but I, I think it's um, something about uh, being the voice and the advocate for someone who's incredibly vulnerable and, um, you know, facing 
sometimes the worst possible thing that could happen to them and and having the chance to try to change the course of what happens in that in that person's life is is really what appealed to me. I think that's why a lot of people go to law school <laughs> and pursue careers <laughs> in the legal profession uh, in general. Are there particular skills or personality traits that you think make for a good uh, public defender? Well, I think you have to have a lot of skills. Um, you have to, and I don't even know if this is a skill, but I think you have to have passion for what you're doing. Um, you have to be deeply committed to defending that individual. Um, I was always in the camp that it, it wasn't enough to feel like uh, I was making sure that my client's rights were being protected. Um, you know, that, that uh, the, the Constitution requires a, an advocacy system where there'll be somebody on both sides of it. That, that never, to me, seemed enough. Um, you know, I, I think someone needs an advocate who will zealously, uh, you know, do their best in every way within the law to get the best outcome for their client. Um, so, so I think it takes passion. I think it takes, obviously, a you know, a strong understanding of um, law and, and how to tell stories, um, because in criminal cases, um, it comes down to telling a story about what happened and telling a story about why your client uh, sh- should be acquitted. Um, and then, you know, there are courtroom skills that people learn over time um, that take a lot of practice, but can definitely be learned. So, I mean, I think it takes a lot of things, but those are maybe some of the key things that I I have seen in my career. It's hard to generalize, I'm sure, but how'd you spend your time? Sort of what what'd you do all day? So, uh, you know, I, I started my career as a misdemeanor lawyer, uh, representing people charged with, you know, things like shoplifting and, and drug possession and assault and battery and uh, incarcerable traffic offenses like drinking and driving. And when I was doing that, I spent a lot of time in court. Um, I would spend at, at least three days a week assigned um, to multiple courtrooms handling um, 10 to 15 different cases uh, a day, so three times a week. Uh, but then there were other days when I also had to be in court. So it was a lot of time in court. And then, um, frankly, you spend a lot of time at the jail because when you're representing poor people, um, one of the unfortunate things is that if you're poor, you may end up in jail when charged with a crime, uh, waiting for your case to be called. And if you have means, then uh, you're likely not going to be in jail. Um, So I spent a lot of time in the Montgomery County Detention Center meeting with clients, talking with clients, updating clients on what um, was going on in their cases. Um, So that was a lot of time. And then, um, you know, brainstorming with colleagues, um, investigating cases. Uh, This is something that, you know, maybe lawyers know, but a lot of other people may not know. But um, investigating a criminal case from the defense point of view is one of the most important parts of having a chance to actually prevail um, because discovery is so limited. So um, having an ability to have an understanding of what happened and who might be a witness and where to find them and what they might say, whether they're favorable to you or unfavorable to you, um, is critical. So I spent a fair amount of time investigating. 
One of the things that you did while you were at the Office of the Public Defender was to create a pro bono collaboration with law firms. And I would like to learn more about this project, sort of how it came to be, how are the pro bono lawyers were involved, and what was this project all about? So there, I think I can take credit for implementing somebody else's idea. Um, what happened is uh, that I got a call from a partner at a major D.C. law firm, and he said that he had reached out to another public defender agency uh, about the possibility of having lawyers, young lawyers and other lawyers at his firm co-counsel with uh, the public defenders at that agency, and as a way both for the lawyers to do something good and give back, but also as a way to develop um, trial skills and to have a chance to actually do jury trials. And um, it didn't work out with the other agencies, so he reached out to me because we had someone that we knew in common. Uh, and so I pitched this idea to my boss at the time, and he was very supportive. And, and I was really interested in this because I saw it as a way to, to leverage um, really smart, people at firms with a lot of resources and uh, as a way to try to, the idea was to try to uh, reduce the caseload of the lawyers in the public defender's office so that uh, we would uh, not assign the lawyers from the firm cases that we otherwise weren't going to handle, but would assign them cases that we already had assigned to our lawyers. Um, so it started with that one firm. And we did it as a pilot project, and so I put together with the partner at the firm a kind of a two-day crash course training in how to handle a criminal case in, in Maryland, um, how, to, how to defend someone facing criminal charges, a lot of procedure, uh, and some trial skills. Uh, and we started with that firm, and it was very successful. And so then we started inviting other law firms to join. And I think by the time I left the public defender's office a couple of years later, we had um, seven or eight firms, maybe more. I've lost track now. It's been a long time. And over 150 lawyers that we trained. Uh, and I think we assigned to those lawyers over 75 cases in a, in, within a time period of just a couple of years. Um, and that was a significant number of cases because my office had 30 lawyers overall, and um, most of the cases that we ended up assigning were felony cases. So we only had about a dozen felony lawyers in our office. So um, if we assigned 35 cases in one year, um, that was a, you know, a significant reduction. It might be a couple, three uh, cases that lawyers in our office each wouldn't have to handle themselves. Um, so I think it was pretty successful, and it continued after I left the public defender's office. In fact, uh, my firm, Skadden, uh, was one of the firms that continued to, or that participated in that program and continued to do that after I joined Skadden and left the public defender's office. We get a lot of inquiries from firms who are interested in these type of, you know, arrangements, collaborations. What tips would you offer firms who are interested in working with a public defender office in, in such a relationship? Are there structures or people or in-house expertise or things that you think are sort of prerequisites in order to set up a, a successful program like this? I think it's very helpful to have somebody in the firm who has experience uh, 
handling these types of cases, whether it's a former public defender or a former prosecutor or a white-collar criminal defense um, practice within the firm, because criminal defense is just not the same animal as other types of legal representation. So I think that that's helpful. I wouldn't say that it's a prerequisite, but it, it does make it easier to collaborate with a public defender's office, but not be uh, too much of a drain on the time of the lawyers in the public defender's office. Uh, because while I've found that they're very willing to mentor and answer questions and provide guidance and support, um, it's going to be a much more effective program if, if the firm can kind of handle some of that supervision uh, and guidance from within. So I think that's probably one of the most important parts of having a successful program like that. That's really great to know and tremendous insights. Um, we're going to come back to how you got to Skadden and, and your experience there. But for now, we're going to continue to talk about um, the intersection of pro bono and criminal defense work. So could you tell us a little bit about the Clemency Project? I guess it's Clemency Project 2014 and you and your firm's involvement with that. In um, early 2014, the Department of Justice announced that President Obama was interested in uh, using his clemency power to, uh, to help people who got caught up, caught up in the war on drugs and who received uh, very lengthy sentences uh, in, uh, in federal court um, and who were nonviolent offenders uh, with no history of violence uh, either before they were charged with their, the crimes that they were in prison or um, in the crimes for which they were prosecuted, and also no, no uh, violence while in prison. Um, and, and the final part of it was uh, people who, if they had been sentenced under current laws and policies, would have received a significantly shorter sentence. So the Department of Justice and the uh, Deputy Attorney General at that time announced uh, the president's interest in using his clemency power to help um, those sorts of folks and actually called upon the um, advocacy organizations and ultimately the, um, the bar itself to help identify uh, inmates in the uh, U.S. prisons, the Bureau of Prisons, plus private prisons that were contracted by the Department of Justice to identify inmates who met those criteria. Uh, and uh, a group of uh, advocacy organizations who worked a lot in this field um, got together and formed the Clemency Project 2014 and started to plan um, steps to recruit and train lawyers to um, represent, uh, well, first to screen inmates to determine whether they likely met that criteria and then to represent inmates on clemency petitions who met the criteria established by the Department of Justice. So fairly early on in the, in the process, one of the advocacy organizations, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, which was not one of the original uh, sort of founding members of the Clemency Project 2014. Um, they got involved because the Lawyers Committee has a tremendous experience in developing national pro bono networks and uh, recruiting and training you know, hundreds and thousands of lawyers, uh, in this case, turned out, um, to join together in a common effort. And so 
uh, they began to be part of the the Clemency Project work early on, and and um, uh, they reached out to me because uh, we've had a relationship, and I've worked on projects with them, and and they knew of my criminal defense background, and so I started working with the Lawyers Committee, and and through them with folks in the uh, Clemency Project 2014, mostly on the side of uh, uh, helping to put together a structure uh, for recruiting and and training lawyers, and part part of what was helpful was my connections with other pro bono counsel at firms in D.C. and uh, to some extent, you know, in other places around the country. So that's how I got involved. And um, over the last two and a half years or so, um, the Clemency Project has recruited, I think it's three or 4,000 lawyers to screen um, requests from about 35,000 inmates across the country who expressed interest in having a pro bono lawyer screen their their eligibility. So I don't I don't want to air dirty laundry or <laughs> anything like that, but some firms have reported mixed experiences working on this project. Could could you share some of the pros and cons of of people's experience uh, doing this work? Absolutely. And I and I, I recognize that this has been a, a process that has had kind of fits and starts. And um, but I think ultimately it's been a tremendous success because the president has granted clemency as of today to over a thousand inmates. So um, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in, in the project. But there was, um, there have been a number of different iterations of the, of the process. First, lawyers were told that uh, there would be about six hours of training that they had to watch on a you know, uh, on-demand training that they could do on, from their uh, computers, laptops, or whatever. Um, and that, over time, changed as the project got more insight from uh, the administration about what they were looking for. And as people started working on cases, um, it, it ended up being just about uh, a couple hours of training rather than six hours of training. There's also a, a lot of um, difficulty initially obtaining one of the key documents that was critical to evaluating inmates, um, which was the pre-sentence report. Um, it's a very tightly controlled document, and so uh, there were oftentimes long delays where lawyers would be recruited and assigned an inmate to review, and then a long period of time before the lawyers would able would be able to, to receive the document that they needed. And I think there was also concern about how long it took uh, the Clemency Project folks to uh, screen kind of the final document that was prepared by lawyers in their evaluation and and um, some some issues about uh, you know getting sufficient information, but I I would say overall I think that the resources that the Clemency Project put together and the various ways and orga- uh, and organizations that were available for people to get support as they had questions on sometimes really complicated matters, um, I think it was a pretty remarkable effort. So um, there are some I, I know that some firms decided to sort of. Uh, find inmates and, and work outside of the process. And, and the president has granted clemency to uh, many inmates who didn't actually submit their petitions through the Clemency Project 2014. And I, I really think that it's terrific that uh, regardless of how an inmate ended up getting their help or through what channels, um, a very large number of uh, people have had their sentences reduced. And I'm still hopeful that the president will grant uh, many, many more. There are 
hundreds and maybe thousands thousands of people who have requests to the president in the pipeline right now and not that much time left. Yeah, I was going to ask to to right to get out your crystal ball since we're, you know, approaching a change of administration and what do you think what do you think's going to happen <laughs> with the, you know, the pending uh applications? My own view is that um they, the the administration will review um, nearly all of the applications that have that are already in the pipeline, and uh, I'm hoping that there will be some uh, kind of decisions made more on categories of inmates rather than a, an individual determination about each specific person's eligibility um, or some sort of a hybrid. Um, so that they can get through uh, all of the uh, inmates who've submitted requests uh, before President Obama leaves office, because there's no uh, way to know whether the next administration will have the same uh, appetite for uh, reducing our prison population and trying to ameliorate some of the worst parts of the war on drugs, um, which has been so devastating to communities all across the country. So. I'm hoping that uh, President Obama will uh, grant many, many more clemency requests before he leaves office, and uh, I'm confident there will be more grants before he leaves office, but I hope it's uh, a a really big number because I think there are many, many deserving people um, who are desperate for this opportunity. We'll see. I mean, depending on when listeners are listening, they may know the answers. <laughs> exactly. They may know. This may not be a uh, uh, crystal ball, but a, a replay. Exactly. So we'll stay tuned. We'll see what's happening. So many listeners are familiar with a lawyer, Barry Sheck. And many of you may know him from the O.J. Simpson trial, which in pop culture had a renaissance this year with the ESPN documentary and The People versus O.J. Simpson, an American crime story. These were both critically acclaimed hits. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the Innocence Project, which which you've been involved in. The Innocence Project is an organization in New York that Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld, um, who also was uh, a part of the O.J. team, uh, founded, um, I've, I've lost track of how many years ago, several decades ago, and the, the mission of the Innocence Project, uh, which is located in New York, is to help people who are in prison who are actually innocent, um, not people who are in prison because of uh, a technicality or a, um, a procedural problem that went wrong in their case, uh, but people who shouldn't be in prison because they didn't commit the crime uh, for which they were convicted. And there's a whole innocence movement across the United States. There's innocence projects. Um, in almost every state, uh, or projects that cover every state, um, some of them are uh, individual, you know, nonprofit organizations. Some of them are affiliated with law schools, um, but there are projects all over the country. And the Innocence Project in New York is is the most famous, and and they have uh, they have helped well over 150 people um, who uh, were exonerated because of DNA evidence that was discovered later on. Um, recently, the Innocence Project in New York has, has started focusing on cases that don't only involve DNA, but there are Innocence Projects uh, around in other places in the country that have helped people who, who don't have any possibility of being exonerated by 
DNA evidence, but have other evidence of innocence. And I've been involved in a project here in D.C. called the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project, which helps inmates uh, from D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Uh, and um, our project and many others uh, work on both DNA cases as well as non-DNA cases. Related to exonerations, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, a pretty well-known case that you worked on called the Norfolk Four. Um, you, one of the other lawyers involved in this, George Kendall, was an amazing guest on our podcast. Some of you may have listened to that episode already or, or check it out. But I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the Norfolk Four. The Norfolk Four are four former sailors. Um, they were they were actually in the Navy at the time that they were falsely accused um, of a terrible murder of an 18-year-old young woman who was the wife of a, another Navy sailor, uh, and she was raped and murdered in her apartment in uh, the summer of 1997. And the the curious bizarre thing about the Norfolk Four is that the police focused very quickly on a man who later became my client uh, and uh, interrogated him without really any reason to believe, no real evidence to believe that he was involved. Um, And the Norfolk Four is really a story about uh, coercive interrogations and the ways that police can uh, pressure people to admit to a crime that they didn't commit. And then uh, kind of because of a concept uh, called tunnel vision, uh, never give up on their belief uh, or accusation that the person who made the confession um, is the real perpetrator, even in the face of mounting and very, very persuasive evidence that they've gone down the wrong path. So very briefly, the police accused my client and pressured him to confess and then uh, uh, charged him with capital murder. He was facing the death penalty. But a couple months later, when DNA evidence did not match him, and there was DNA evidence from the crime scene as well as from the rape kit examination, rather than questioning whether they had the right person, they simply decided that he had an accomplice who must have been the person who left the DNA who committed the crime with him. So they interrogated and coerced a confession from his roommate, who was another sailor, um, and he ultimately confessed. Uh, His confession didn't match the crime scene. His confession didn't match uh, my client's confession, which also uh, bore no relationship to what actually happened in the case. And uh, they felt they solved the crime, and then DNA came back, and it didn't match the second guy, and they did the exact same thing again with the third person. And then the exact same thing months later with a fourth person. And ultimately, there were seven men in prison, four of whom confessed. All were facing the death penalty. um, And none of them matched the DNA evidence that should have told the investigators um, that they had the wrong person. And it's a long story, but ultimately, four innocent men spent between eight and 12 years in prison, despite exonerating DNA evidence, before. Uh, Governor Tim Kaine uh, granted a clemency request from um, lawyers representing um, these men, including me and lawyers from my law firm and and four other or three other major law firms. Uh, and our clients were 
released from prison, but they their convictions were left on their record, and it's taken another seven years uh, and an enormous amount of uh, lawyering and uh, you know commitment from pro bono lawyers at a lot of firms to uh, finally um, overturn the convictions of three men, but one of them. Uh, has had no recourse in the courts for complicated reasons um, and is still under the law viewed as uh, responsible for the rape of this young woman. And we are now working to try to persuade a new governor in Virginia, Governor McAuliffe, to grant absolute pardons to all four of these men. Um, So it's been a 19-year odyssey for our clients. And George Kendall and I and many, many other really talented lawyers have been working on this case for 12 and a half years, and we're we're not quite done yet. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing. We're, we're so inspired by this amazing and important work. Well, I will just say that um, one of my uh, heroes in law is uh, George Kendall, and I listened to your podcast with George, just trying to get a sense of what, what to expect about this podcast, but um, he is an amazing person, and uh, it's been a real honor to work with him on this case and uh, and, and many of the other people uh, who've, who've contributed, I think, feel the exact same way about George. So it's really uh, one of the highlights of my career. Thanks for listening and a special thank you to Don for joining us. Be sure to join us for part two of our conversation next week when we'll be discussing Skadden's pro bono program, including its innovative global impact project. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and please take a moment to leave a review. We'd appreciate the honest feedback, and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the program and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments and suggestions to pro bono at probonoinst.org. Be warned, we might just read them on the air. As always, to learn more about the Pro Bono Institute and our work, please visit our website at probonoinst.org. The next program in the Esther Lardent Leadership in Pro Bono series, a conversation with Tim Mayopoulos, the president and CEO of Fannie Mae, is scheduled for January 25th in Washington, D.C. And registration is now open for our annual conference, which will be in March. If you're interested, act now to take advantage of discounted registration rates. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.